but beginning in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build his, him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. <clears throat> he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up, stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them, thirty basins of gold, a thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred and ten bowls of silver, and a thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were fifty-four uh, hundred. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit here to verses 64 and 65. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. They had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. We're not going to count the mules and the horses. Let me stop right there and pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Some of you are old enough to remember playing Oregon Trail. I won't make you raise hands. Uh, well, I, I could be. How many of you are familiar with Oregon Trail, at least, and what that game was? Okay, very good. I've seen now it's offered as a card game you can buy, uh, but I remember playing the original version on, like, a black and green screen once upon a time when I was quite young. This was in school. We called this education in the early 90s, and um, it's pretty much all we did. I was in, I was in a, a gifted class, and this is all we did. We, we spent all day playing Oregon Trail. I know, we're spoiled brats. And, and, and anyway, Oregon Trail was kind of the worst. Uh, other than the hunting part, that was kind of fun. But the, the whole premise of the game was that you're a pioneer family, and, and you're heading out west to make your fortune in Oregon or California or whatever, and it was kind of lame, honestly, but, you know, we weren't allowed to play Nintendo in school, so this is what we settled for. And um, 
the entire game basically came down to what you did at the very beginning. Um, how did you spend your very limited budget before you left Independence, Missouri? And it, it, it was tricky. You had to buy enough like wagon parts. You had to buy ammo. You had to buy food, clothes, whatever. And the trick is there's only so much room in the wagon. They don't let you just buy unlimited things. You can't bring everything. You, for instance, you could only bring three kids. Like, I'm already out of luck, right? I'm thinking to myself, if I want to go to Oregon, I have to marry Grace and Alyssa off and probably sell Gwen. That's how this is going to work. And it wouldn't really matter how you did it, because you start on this journey, you think you've planned, and everyone just starts dying of cholera and dysentery and this and that and the other thing, right? And no one ever gets to Oregon healthy and in one piece. And so just for research, I tried playing online this week. You can find it. It's still just as impossible as when I was a kid. Uh, and the lesson I take from this is that it really isn't worth going to Oregon. And it's kind of like that John Candy movie. The last one he ever made was called Wagons East. He died while they were in production. But the whole premise is there's a bunch of pioneers who decide this is this is awful, and they decide to go home, and he's the guy leading this wagon train to go back east. And, you know, you think of it that way, and it's like, and of course, the easiest thing would be to just not bother going west in the first place, right? But we know that the American pioneers were a different class of people. They were made of sterner stuff. Uh, if you read the little house books, you know. Uh, they suffered a lot to go to a place that was only a rumor somewhere out west, right? And they did it because they were promised a land of plenty, a sort of paradise on earth, fertile grounds where they could make their fortune practically overnight, right? And today, you go to the west coast and it really is like a paradise, if you can afford the taxes, and if you don't have to live in any of the major cities, it's fine for a visit, though it can't be wrong, but uh, you know, going to California now doesn't have quite the same romance, maybe, but it's still beautiful, and, and the pioneers are the ones who forged the way, right? We're getting into the meat here of the Book of Ezra, and, and, and this also starts out as a pioneer story, in a way. Uh, God's people are, are being invited to travel west, Back to the land of promise, the place that God had described in olden days as one that was flowing with milk and honey. But just as the American pioneers had to face many hardships and an unclear future, the people of Ezra's day had many of their own challenges ahead, and like playing Oregon Trail, the benefits would not have been entirely clear to all. In fact, the smart money was on staying put. Don't leave Missouri. Because returning to the promised land was not an easy task, and in some ways it was going to be depressing. And unlike the first arrival, like when, when the Jews first left Egypt, compared to that, this would seem anticlimactic. The, the return to Jerusalem lacks all the romance and magic of the first time. By comparison, it almost seems mundane. But God is at work in the mundane. Uh, the book opens, as we saw last week, with this proclamation by Cyrus. But God does no flashy miracles here. There, there is no great Jewish rebellion. There's no great victory that they win. Uh, they certainly didn't free themselves, nor does God give them any sense of participation in achieving this freedom. They're not going back to Jerusalem as conquering heroes. They're going according to God's promises, but by the permission of a pagan king. It's kind of weird. Well, who exactly is this Cyrus fellow? We, we started to look at him a little bit last week. 
But the thing is, like, we call this the Babylonian exile, right? But he's a Persian king, and that seems like it doesn't make sense, but the answer is actually pretty simple. The Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Judah, and they had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, right? And they had deported a large number of the Jewish people, about, we think, maybe a quarter of them, to their own capital, to Babylon. And they did this for several reasons. One was to punish their enemies, but it also ensured that the Jews were not going to rise up against them later. This was an easy way to declaw uh, Judah and, and make it subservient. You take most of their leaders, you take them captive to Babylon, and essentially you make the Babylonians. It's a, it's a control mechanism. But, you know, within a couple hundred years, the Babylonians have fallen into decline over really just a matter of decades. And while their neighbors got stronger, the Persians had kind of quietly absorbed them with very little resistance in 539 B.C., so that's sort of the secular historical setting. Uh, the Persians, this would be like modern-day Iran, they're in the ascendancy. Uh, Nineveh and the Assyrians had collapsed, uh, and, and so now they're the world superpower, and Cyrus is their king. He had been the king over a, a smaller kingdom uh, located in the city of Ansham, which is gone now. Uh, but he had control over a small area, but he eventually had conquered the Medes, and so now he, by the end of this, I mean, he expands all over Asia. Uh, the the Medo-Persian Empire at its height went from, like, northern India all the way to Greece and even eventually conquered Egypt. Uh, and Cyrus was their greatest king. And Cyrus, in God's mercy, was what we would call an enlightened king. Uh, his attitude was that happy people are easier to rule and easier to tax. Uh, so he wanted everyone to love him. So he's kind of like Michael Scott in The Office. There's a scene where, they, you know... He, I guess somebody asked him, you know, would you rather be feared or loved? And he says, easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me, right? That's Cyrus. He's not a pious man of great faith. He's just eager to please his subjects and keep them happy and loyal. And because of this, Cyrus is a religious pluralist. He supports all the religions. Kind of like a lot of American politicians trying to play this card, too. He wants every local god to be on his side. So when he marches into Babylon, his first reaction is to say, all right, the Jews are now free. And he encourages them to go home and reestablish their ancient religion, not because he worships their God, but he wants to get along with everyone's God. And it's a smart political policy. And, and there's a sixth sense to it. I mean, you'll find this with unbelievers even today. You will find that most people will accept your offer to pray for them, even if they don't believe in God. I remember once offering to pray for a customer of mine who was Jewish, but an atheist, and he had little time for religion. He was a very unhappy person, kind of a miserable customer of mine. Uh, but he had recently been diagnosed with cancer, and he was in quick decline. And when I offered to pray with him the one evening when he came in late, he accepted with tears in his eyes and let me hold his hand while I did it. Um, You know, and I... So unbelievers will accept prayer, and, and Cyrus is not an exception in, in this, but I, I don't think he believed God was listening necessarily, but, you know, it, it, it's best to be safe, right? So it's kind of like Pascal's wager. You know, maybe God doesn't exist, but you can't really afford to, 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 not, to, to, to believe that he's not there, and so it's better to believe he exists than to find out later that you're wrong, right? So Cyrus is not so much asking for prayers out of fear or desperation at this point. He, it's because he figures, you know, why not? Why not cover all my bases? There's no harm in having the Jews pray to their God for me. It may even help. And if nothing else, 
They'll be afraid of how much they love me, and they will never rebel if I treat them well. Uh, so in a sense, he believed that the Jewish God was responsible for his ruling over them. He's not wrong in that sense. But again, this is not saving fate. And yet God uses it to free his people. It's kind of like the Edict of Milan under uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine, which legalized Christianity throughout Rome. I don't know for sure if Constantine's faith was genuine, but it doesn't really matter. It was a good law. It was good for the church. And while it's not the primary point of Ezra's story, I just wanted to observe that in passing, at least, that, you know, we don't need believers in government to have good government or at least a better government. I mean, I, I like the idea of having a Christian president and a Christian governor and a Christian mayor, but it's not necessary to have believers in positions of power for God's people to thrive. The New Testament church never had a Christian government to rely on, and yet the church grew unhindered in spite of hostility even at times, you know, and there's degrees of difference in secular government. Some are better than others, and God's people are better off with a good secular king than a wicked one. And I think that Cyrus counts as a good king, even without true faith. And it wasn't true faith. Verse 3 says, right, you know, he, think, he thinks of Yahweh as a, as a local god. He refers to him as the god who is in Jerusalem, that god over there, you know. Uh, but nevertheless, Cyrus is good at his job, and God's people should be thankful for that. But I'm going to talk about it. There's another piece of political calculus going on here as well. Uh, because throughout this time, Cyrus and his empire have their eyes set on Egypt, uh, which would eventually be conquered by Cyrus's son. But that means that Judea, the, the, the promised land, that's sort of the keystone of the empire. You, you can't stretch your empire into Europe and Africa without having a firm grip on that, that coastline there. So it's a connecting point for everything else. And so Cyrus has a lot of reasons, practical if not holy, for strengthening his grip on the Jewish homeland. And since the Babylonians left it as a desolate wasteland in a lot of respects, this meant rebuilding the place. And who better to do that than the Jews? They're the ones who like the place, right? So we'll send them to do it. So we look at this proclamation, and we should be aware this was a general policy for Cyrus. There would have been other types of proclamations for other religious groups, but he believed in religious freedom for political reasons. The Jews are not unique in that case. The main difference, as Ezra points out, is that in this case, the thanks is not to Cyrus's generosity, and it's not thanks to his political aspirations, but to God who has promised deliverance through the mouth of Jeremiah. That's the reality behind the reality. Many people were treated well by Cyrus, but only God's people had God's promises. The Jews could rightly be thankful for Cyrus's kindness, but the praise ultimately goes to God. The fact that Cyrus was generous with many people is actually a sign that God's generosity to his people tends to overflow even to the pagans around them. When God is good to his people, it frequently benefits everybody around them. It connects with another thing that God told Jeremiah when he told him to pray for the city that you live in. We're talking about common grace here. God makes it rain on the just and the unjust, and it benefits the pagans, but it also blesses you. The difference is that you know who to thank for it. So, okay, Cyrus declares that all the Jews may go back to the exile. So as of this moment, the exile is officially over. And he even urges his non-Jewish subjects in verse 4 to support this endeavor. And according to verse 6, many did. It, was, it became a patriotic duty to support this mission, because you have to remember the ultimate goal to get to Egypt. 
And Cyrus basically reverses all the Babylonian policies, even in the minutest detail. It says he released even the sacred vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen. And Ezra goes and he mentions Mithridath, the treasurer, not because Mithridath is terribly important. I mean, honestly, who cares who the treasurer of the United States is, right? I mean, like, who can even name the U.S. treasurer? I couldn't. I had to look it up. I'm not even going to bother sharing. It doesn't matter. Who cares? He mentions this to emphasize that this was, a, uh, this was official state policy now. Cyrus doesn't do this arbitrarily or quietly or independently on his own. He issues formal orders. His officials obey. And if you would have looked at the legal records and the Persian archives at this time, you would see all of this confirmed. The treasurer would have kept count of every bowl and vessel and everything that got spent. So basically... You have a situation where the entire kingdom of Medo-Persia is placed at the service of God's people. The numbers in verse 9 are to demonstrate just how much Cyrus was willing to invest in this project. He's sacrificing all these spoils of war that he's got. 5,400 vessels of silver and gold. It's not chump change. Not to mention everything else that he had everybody contribute that's how important it was to rebuild Jerusalem on his western frontier. And not only that, Cyrus relinquishes all of the captives, the best and the brightest of, that Jerusalem has to offer. He sets them all free to go back, sends them home with his blessing. He offers to pay for the one-way trip. That's how God places an entire empire at the service of his people. Isn't God awesome? But again, going back is not the same as going the first time. And this doesn't look like the Exodus. George has been covering the Exodus downstairs with the kids, you know. But she observed when we were talking this week, we, we go for, we'll go for walks and discuss the passage. And, and we were discussing this passage. And she said, you know, one of the things that stands out about Ezra and Nehemiah is that there are no miracles. Not in this, not in, not in, in, in any kind of obvious way. And it stands in a contrast to how God brought his people out of Egypt. Because God did mighty deeds in the time of Exodus all over the place, right? And the conquest of Canaan was likewise glorious and exciting. This is why they make movies about Moses, but not too many blockbusters about Ezra and Nehemiah. He doesn't give them a Jewish king or a great military victory. There's no exciting escape. It all happens in a very formal, organized, humdrum kind of way, with the blessing of the king and his advisors and officers. They don't have to flee in the night. They can go during the day. It happens with the cooperation of the administration and the Persian people. It is almost mundane. It's not flashy, but God's offered to send them home. And I think it's a picture of the gospel because there is, again, nothing about this story for which God's people can claim credit. You know, their deliverance is just dropped in their lap. It comes with zero effort. It's delivered on a silver platter. The shame of the exile is over. All you have to do is rise up and go home. You're free to go. Pack the wagons. Head west. But there's something fishy about these opening chapters, and especially chapter 2. Look again at the verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Okay. And then what follows is a list that fills most of the chapter. Why is this chapter necessary? Why do we get 
a detailed list of names of households. Why doesn't Ezra just say, and God's grateful people got up and went home? Well, I suspect that Ezra wanted to record with honor those who went, because not everybody did. Now, I chose to be merciful to you and myself by not reading aloud all of these names this morning. The list includes a wide variety of people and households. There is a general category for sort of the men of the people of Israel. Uh, he lists the households of the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, the descendants of Solomon's household, and even a list of some households who were eager to come but could not prove that they were Jewish or which household they belonged to. And it seems like, oh, there's representatives of every group. But in the end, in verse 42, we read that all told, I'm sorry, not 42. Is it 64? I don't know what I wrote down. 64, I'm sorry. In verse 64, we read that all told, the exiles who returned numbered 42,360. Besides a few thousand servants and singers, so maybe let's bump it up to 50 grand, right? 50,000 people. That may sound like an impressive number, but beloved, that is not the whole house of Israel that was living in Babylon. It's not even the majority of the Jews that are living in Babylon. That's about the population of the West End of Allentown. That's not a nation, it's a neighborhood. Compare that and consider the number of contrasts that when they left Egypt in Exodus, 600,000 went with them. So not everyone signed up. And not everybody went back. The most striking thing about this list in chapter 2 is not how long it is, although it would feel that way if I read it to you. What's striking about it is how short it is. To those living at that time, the list would be striking for who is missing. Which households are not represented? Why, after all these years of exile, is the number so small? Well, there's a couple possibilities. For one thing, not everyone is still around, right? Uh, not everybody would have been able to go back you have to figure God waited 70 years to fulfill his promise of restoring Israel. That means most of the people who lived through the destruction of Jerusalem did not live long enough to see it rebuilt. The people who most mourned the loss of Jerusalem were well advanced in years at this point, and many had died and were buried now, outside the promised land. Not everyone will live to see God rebuild things in their lifetime. I reflected on that a good bit this week, just in recent days, because we as a denomination have suffered multiple heavy losses. Maybe you've seen that on the news or in Facebook or whatever. Uh, within a week, we lost Steve Smallman, who ministered for decades in northern Virginia in the D.C. suburbs. He was a pastor to several politicians, including one of the vice presidents of the United States. He was later for a brief while Georgia's interim pastor when she was a teenager. On Thursday, we lost Harry Reeder, 
perhaps the most powerful preacher I've ever heard. I, I shared a sermon on Facebook yesterday. It is long, but he is a better preacher than me. Do yourselves a favor and listen to it this afternoon. And the following morning, we lost Tim Keller. These men saw and led a great deal of revival and growth in their lifetime and ministry, and I'm sure if you could ask any one of them, not one of them would volunteer to come back. Uh, I think they're more than happy to stay where they are with Jesus, but for those of us who remain, it feels like a sucker punch because they won't be at General Assembly next month. We have to keep working, and we have to keep moving and building without them. They didn't get to see the whole story, and we have to pick up where they left off. Uh, we've been praying for revival in this church. We, we talk about moving and reaching this city, and, and I am excited about where we're going, but every one of us can name some people who will not be with us when we get there, who were called home before we could get there. I reflected this week about Royce. Uh, Royce prayed every week at morning prayer and in our session meetings that we might reach the people of the inner city here in Allentown. He would think about that revolving door of young professionals down there chasing the American dream, but who have no sense of spiritual direction. People like the Ninevites who didn't know their right hand from their left. And my prayer is that we will get there, and it echoes Royce's prayer, but we have to do it without Royce. And there are others, right? And we have to face the fact that none of us will live long enough to see the whole story, right? We, we live and we walk in faith that God is at work, and we seek to be faithful with the time and the resources that he has given us. And, you know, that's just the way it is. So some didn't live to see their freedom arrive, but that doesn't really explain this number being so small. This re the reason this number is so disappointingly small is because not everybody wanted to go back to the promised land. That's the simple answer. Kind of like the start of Oregon Trail, some of them counted the cost and said, forget it. Not everybody wants to go back. Not everybody wanted their freedom. Not every newly freed prisoner knows what to do with his freedom, so some people preferred the comfort of a prosperous captivity, and some people would rather be successful in Babylon than face failure in Jerusalem. In short, it's the same reason that the Israelites complained in the wilderness that they were better off back in Egypt, where at least the food was better. The promised land at this point wasn't that enticing. There's no welcome committee waiting for them. They have no real foundation to build on. The place had been torn down completely. This is not a remodel. It's a complete rebuild. And this is many decades into their captivity, and they've been thoroughly assimilated in a lot of ways. This Jewish prince that gets mentioned, we don't know a whole lot about him, but Sheshbazer, he's leading the wagon train. Consider this. Sheshbazer is not a Jewish name. It's a Babylonian one. The Jews had done exactly what God had told Jeremiah they should do. They have prayed for the welfare of the city that they've been exiled to. And now they have been blessed. But many have forgotten the other part of that passage, the part where God promises that he's going to restore them back to the other place. The Jews actually prospered in Babylon. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had only deported the best and the brightest. He wanted to decapitate the kingdom of Judah. So what he did, 
he he stole her leaders, all of the 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 A students, right? The healthy ones and the ones who could have led any possible resistance. The cream of the crop. That's who he took. So many are looking at the wagon train and they say, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Like, why play Oregon Trail at all? My kids asked me that very question this week. I forced some of them to play as research. Grace thought this was stupid. She didn't realize I was trying to illustrate the passage for her in advance. But seriously, why leave Babylon? If God has blessed us where we are, why go anywhere else? It is like Oregon Trail. It sounds difficult and kind of lame. Why leave our lives and our prosperity behind? The homes and the businesses we've built over the course of decades, like all to go back to what? A a barren wasteland that Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar left behind? There's no Jerusalem to, to speak of to return to. It's a pile of rubble. It's like leaving Manhattan for, I don't know, Gary, Indiana, or Detroit. But worse, it's just empty. And if you go there, you have to go as pioneers. You have to trust God that he's going to build something when you get there. It requires a leap of faith. It means going forward without having a complete roadmap. And it means starting all over again, but without the miracles and without the sense of victory that the Exodus gave you. And frankly, that didn't appeal to everybody. So many, most of the Jews stayed. And the Iraqi Jewish population didn't actually leave until the 20th century. We're talking like the last 50 years. But I don't want you to miss, in the midst of seeing that, that Ezra's focus is not on those who stayed behind. Ezra's focus is on this list. This list, which is the first of several that you're going to see in this book, this is here to celebrate the ones who got in the wagon, who got rid of everything that wouldn't fit in the wagon, the ones who counted the cost and said, I'm in. See, there's a sifting happening here, and it's kind of like when Gideon went into battle and God, you know, pared it back down to 300 men. God's thinning the herd down to the committed ones, the fearless. These are the ones who left everything behind to be a part of what God was doing. They were focused on God, and they were focused on his mission. And they didn't have the flashy miracles to depend on. They didn't get the ten plagues. They didn't get the pillar of smoke and fire. They didn't get the parting of the Red Sea. They are resting on the promises of God. And they trusted him to be at work, even in the mundane. They hear the proclamation of Cyrus, and they hear the very voice of God saying, I remember you, and I will restore you. It's an act of faith. They're not relying on their memories. Most of them had never even seen the promised land, and those who had knew what it looked like when they left. But they pack up everything, leaning not on their own understanding, because they remember their identity as God's people. By faith, their eyes are on God, and they would rather serve him and his mission than enjoy chasing the Babylonian dream, or the Persian dream, or the American dream for that matter. What does this mean for a church like ours? Well, I would challenge us that signing up for God's mission requires taking risks. 
and it means giving some things up that don't fit in the wagon. It means leaving behind comfort and the worldly success and our routines and our peace and quiet. And it means trusting in his promises when we can't see what's coming around the bend. It means trusting him to be at work, even in the seemingly mundane things. It means we're not waiting for miracles. The Jews of Ezra's day saw no pillar of fire or smoke, but we cannot, and we must not be a generation that demands a sign before we do anything. Obedience to the Great Commission does not require foreknowledge of how it's going to go. And you can't get to Oregon if you keep one foot in Missouri. Being a church on a mission requires some flexibility, not on doctrine, but maybe on approach and tactics. I've been saying since the congregational meeting in March that we need to start thinking like a church plant. Some of you have asked me what that means. I'm not going to explore all of that right now, but in short, it means being quick on our feet. It means being adaptable and creative and passionate and eager to grow. It means spreading the gospel like we believe it and like we believe that it's the only hope for a lost world. It means carrying only what fits in the wagon. It means you bring the gospel essentials and everything else becomes negotiable. So, for example, if you're moving to Oregon in a covered wagon, right, you don't bring the pipe organ with you. You probably don't bring the piano either. You might have to settle for a fiddle. Or maybe even a guitar. The exiles only brought singers. Acting like a church plant means getting out of our own walls. It means maybe my office needs to become a cafe or a market somewhere so I can meet more people. It might mean we have to set up literature tables or other things for church every week. It might mean we have to share space with people we don't even really like. We may have to do some evangelism and recruiting, and we may have to ask our sister churches for help and advice on the way. And I have become convicted and convinced that this summer needs to be a time for soul-searching because there is a mission laid before us, and if we're going to reach this city for Christ, we must be willing to get moving without having all of the answers. Even if our destination seems unclear or, worse yet, looks like a pile of rubble. And I can't promise what the results will look like any more than the people in Ezra's day knew. The mission of the church is not safe. And it was never meant to be. If we want safe, then you live in maintenance mode. And you sit around and you wait and hope that maybe the lost will come and find us. And that won't work. But the alternative is we can raise our hand and say with the prophet, Here I am, Lord, send me. And we say to the Lord in earnest that we want him to make us go anywhere. That's the challenge, I would say, that lays before us. But most of all, I want you to see the promise laid before us, the gospel in this passage, because once again, this passage is actually full of excitement. It leaps off the page because the mission is underway. It doesn't matter the numbers. No one on this wagon train is looking back. And that should be our attitude as well, even more so because we know more of the story than they did. If the gospel is true... And it is. 
then we need to catch some of that same excitement, and then we need to spread it around, because in Christ we know that the mission cannot fail because the victory's already won. Sin was defeated on Calvary. Our Lord has been raised and sits on high, and the Holy Spirit is alive, and he is active. Jesus said he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail over it. So what if we fall on our faces? So what if we crash and burn? Do we believe what Jesus said or not? Do we believe the journey is worth starting? Oregon's probably not worth the effort, but is Jesus' mission worth it? I believe it is. I believe he has plans for Allentown, and I want to be a part of it. I hope you do too. But more than that, I just want to be where Jesus is working. It's not so much focus on the mission. Keep your eyes on the captain, because the work is his. John Piper put it well yesterday. He said, I want us to take more delight in our Savior than his service. So let's enjoy the work. But even more, let's enjoy Jesus. And let's see what he does. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you do restore your people. Lord, not because of anything that they did right. Lord, you build your kingdom, not because of our brilliance, or even the great men that you have raised up, Lord. It is Jesus who is building his church. It's the Spirit who is changing hearts. Lord, and the victory is already won. Teach us to believe that, Lord, and give us a boldness, Lord. Help us to know the essentials to bring with us. Give us a heart for the mission and give us eyes to focus on the captain, on Jesus. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings 